everybody. You are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today we have with us Dr. Michael Spiegel. Am I saying your last name correctly there? You Spiegel? are. Absolutely. Yes, well, thank you. Thanks so much for being willing to join us for uh, the podcast. And we're actually going to be starting a series um, through what we call sometimes the ecumenical creeds. And today we're going to be looking at the first of those, which is the Apostles' Creed. But before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Uh, Dr. Spiegel is Chair and Professor of Theological Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, where he teaches both systematic theology and church history. His expertise is in second century patristics, so like the church fathers, the early uh, church thinkers there. And his books include a translation and commentary on the shepherd of Hermas. I think you were just, like you just submitted that, right? That's not out yet or? It's out. It's out now. Yep. Okay. When did that release? Uh, a couple months ago. Okay, so that's your, actually sooner than I thought. Yeah. So that's like your most recent work, right? So we can promote that something for you. That is the most you. recent. That's okay. right. That one. But, but you've also published other things like Urban Legends of Church History, 40 Common Misconceptions, um, Retro Christianity, Reclaiming the Forgotten Faith, and many more. You also write fiction too. I do. Um, yes. And so you and your wife, Stephanie, have three children, Sophie, Lucas, and Nathan. Um, and so it's really great to be able to have you on as this is kind of an area of expertise as this time period. And so we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed. And if you're a member of my church, Crossway, you know that um, we do a congregational confession or affirmation every Sunday. And we rotate those, but at least every three weeks, essentially, we will confess the Apostles' Creed together. And so let me read, if you need a refresher, let me read... Uh, the English sort of version that at least our church uses. Um, and we, we have it this way. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from which he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. So first question I wanted to ask you is, what do we know about the origin of this document? Like, why is it called the Apostles' Creed? Does it have anything to do with the Apostles? Like, what do we know about the history of this of this thing? Yeah, so it, so I grew up uh, same as you and your church. I grew up in a, in a Lutheran denomination. I remember reciting this. We I think pretty much every Sunday uh, and memorize it even before I even understood it. So it was um, definitely you know for my personal history for, since I was a little child uh, confessing this. But as far as church history goes. This particular very strict form that you just read um, really is dating from sometime between the 5th to 7th century in its final form. Okay. But its content, the content itself, that we talked about the little lines or, or articles of the uh, Apostles' Creed, um, find their origins. First of all, you could ap apply parenthetical scripture verses to every line of this thing. It's very right. biblical. It's among the, the most biblical that we have in the sense of using biblical language 
versus using some theological terms like homoousia, which will come up in a later episode, or some of these terms, this technical terms. So it's very biblical. So the language itself comes from scripture most much of the time. But as far as the various elements in early Christian baptismal confessions, uh, we see elements of all of those by the second century. So kind of, let me put it this way, it's almost like the individual lines of this, this Apostles' Creed were scattered among various local churches in their baptismal confessions. We can talk about, about the, that in a little bit. But uh, And then this was probably originally the, the Roman church's baptismal confession that was mm. recited or, or responded to at baptism with a few things added from a couple of other local churches. So it became um, kind of the standard confession of faith uh, for the Western church by for sure by the seventh century, but its origins are much earlier than that. As far as the, why it's called the apostles creed, there is a legend that developed uh, sometime deep in the patristic period, fourth, fifth century, that the apostles themselves recited in turn uh, a line of this creed, uh, you know, after Pentecost, and it came directly from the lips of the apostles themselves. But um, I don't know anybody today who uh, regards that as anything other than a legend, but it's kind of a cool legend. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, it sounds nice. Yeah. But if nothing else, so sometimes maybe according to that legend, the apostles creed would be that each of the apostles I guess yeah. who's the 12th Matthias maybe, but yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. is like, is contributing a line, probably not true, but um, yeah. otherwise we can still like, there's still a sense we can speak of it as the apostles creed in the sense that it reflects the apostolic faith, the faith that the apostles. Exactly. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, like I said, be, the fact that we could assign Bible verses to every line of this thing demonstrates that it's apostolic in content, right? Mm -hmm. uh, though the language itself in its final form um, does not necessarily come directly from the apostles themselves. But that's not to say that you didn't have these summaries of the Christian faith that were being used for instruction and baptism and such very, very, very early on, possibly late first, early second century. Yeah. I have a book here called Documents of the Christian Church, uh, mm -hmm. Bettinson and Mounder. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but I know when I look in here, this has like some early church documents. There's like different there's different uh, renditions kind of of the Apostles' yeah. Creed. Like I think one is called like the Old Roman Creed Symbol, or yeah. something Creed. like yeah. that. And, and and so I guess, do you have any knowledge about kind of the maybe other, because you said the final form came centuries later. Do you have any, mm -hmm. any sort of insight into some of the documents that led up to or like kind of the earlier versions, the earlier kind of iterations of this creed? Yeah, I'm good question. And it's what I referred to a second ago about the uh, each local congregation, each church, city church had uh, a baptismal confession of faith. And so the way baptism would work in the earliest church in the second, third century is um, it, it was in response to this threefold confession of faith. So someone would they would ask, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible or whatever that was? And then they would respond with, I believe, which is in Latin, credo, which mm -hmm. is where we get the word creed. It means I believe. And then the second article regarding the son, you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, etc. I believe. And then do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, etc. I believe. And so that was that threefold Trinitarian confession of faith. And it 
the content was basically the same universally, except the form of that baptismal confession might have differed slightly in the language. Like, for instance, in the one I just said, I added uh, a maker of heaven, of all things visible and invisible. That's a form that we see in some places. Whereas the Apostles' Creed just says, do you believe in God, the Father, mighty maker of heaven and earth? We use it at that. So those aren't contradictory. They're just, they're complementary and different local churches had different variations of this baptismal confession. And so that's what I mean by that, that there were various forms of this floating around. Um, different churches had different precise language that they would use. And the Apostles' Creed is sort of like uh, they gathered up uh, lines from each of these to create this fuller form that that served as sort of a uniting um, confession of faith um, that united all of these churches with their different confessions in the West primarily. And maybe it would be helpful even to just define what we mean by creed then. You said, uh, I believe in the Latin, that's that's kind of where we get that language from credo or credo. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe help us understand what a creed is and maybe... Is it different than what we mean by a confession or a statement mm-hmm. of faith? Um, what is a creed exactly? Yeah, like you said, creed comes from that first line, that very first word in the Latin text, credo, I believe. And so it's a um, it's a confession of faith, a, a content of the faith itself. So when we talk about a creed, we usually are talking about a formalized, um, it, you could even say formulaic, it's fixed language that is rehearsing or summarizing the biblical Trinitarian creation fall redemption narrative that's centered on Christ's person and work in his first and second coming. And it, it touches on creation. It touches on um, the coming of the son, uh, why he came, who he is, uh, his death, his resurrection, uh, his anticipating his future coming. And then some element of the coming of the spirit and the, and the, the nature of the church and salvation and those kinds of things, eternal life. So it's almost a, a chronological narrative hitting the high points of the biblical story. So it's not that that the creed is, is giving us information that's different than what the Bible gives. What it's doing is it's given us sort of like the, the table of contents of the biblical story. And why would we need that if we have the Bible? Well, it's one thing taking a new believer and saying, here, read this book. You know, and and come back. I'll quiz you on the high points. Rather, what it's doing is it's giving them the the key elements and articles of the Christian story, the object of our faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, in a summary form that was memorizable. I mean, you only have to recite it five, six times, you know, in church before uh, it, you're starting to to catch on. I, I actually taught this this creed to the kids, my kids, when they were very little, and you know they. They learned it really quickly and they were able, even though they didn't understand every line of it, they understood these are the essential teachings of the Christian story uh, that is the basis of our faith. And that's what it's for. It's for firming up, building that foundation of faith upon which now we can spend a lifetime uh, better understanding through the study of scripture. And how would a creed differ from like, say, our church's statement of faith is a lot more detailed than this one, or even yep. if you were to go to some historical statements of faith, like uh, the Second London Baptist Confession, mm-hmm. um, really detailed um, confession of faith, a lot longer than this one. Is it helpful yep. to distinguish like creed from confession? Then are they doing? Are they kind of after different things? 
Yeah, it's. I think it's very important to distinguish those because the uh, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Constantinopolitan, uh, Chalcedonian definition, Athanasian Creed, these things that are uh, what you called in the beginning the ecumenical creeds, it implies um, that these are embraced by everybody, all Christians throughout the world, through all time. And that means that they're focusing on issues that unite us that mm-hmm. look, if you deny the virgin birth, if you deny the deity of Christ, if you deny his death and his resurrection, you're denying essential elements of the Christian faith. Whereas confessions, I don't know any Protestant confession that doesn't include those same articles of the faith uh, that are part of the apostles creed. But what they do is they also explore, take positions on things for which there have actually been diversities of opinions throughout history, things mm-hmm. on eschatology, things on, you know, how should we order our churches and uh, when and how and and, and the meaning of the, the Lord's Supper and baptism, etc., cetera, uh, where they're going to differ on those things. But guess what? We're all going to confess um, that we have the forgiveness of sins through Christ. We're all going to confess his virgin birth. We're all going to confess that God is the maker of heaven and earth. So they're they're unifying all the various branches of the church, whereas confessions tend to define things in a way that distinguish various traditions. Yeah, theological traditions, yeah. So ecumenical yeah. is another word for kind of like the universal church, is that right? Kind of the, Correct. It's, it's all of us together is the idea here. Right, exactly. Um, and so I, I can imagine some, I know this sort of a biblicism, we might, we might sometimes call it, um, was prevalent in American evangelicalism at times and can still be where it can resist the idea of a creed and a confession, something like this, where the idea is um, the Bible is all we need. And we don't want to have any creed but the Bible. I know in the EFCA, for instance, uh, the the denomination that our church um, affiliates with, there is like a historic statement, where is it written, which is a great idea when it comes to we want to make sure all of what we believe is in the Bible and has biblical support. But of course, even a statement like that can be used misused, I should say, towards sort of biblicist ends that wants mm-hmm. to maybe be a little bit allergic to historical considerations, historical theology, and the tradition of the church. So how might you sort of answer maybe some of those concerns? If someone's hearing us uh, talk about the creeds and the ecumenical creeds, and there's a little bit of nervousness arising in them. Yeah, I think some of that nervousness comes from uh, maybe a a heavy-handed use of some of the confessions of faith to divide and to judge people. And frankly, even I've seen, you know, in the history of Protestantism, you know, people who fail to live up to uh, confession X from particular denomination being tried or called a heretic. So that heavy-handedness sometimes with the use of confessions has kind of caused a a pendulum swing. You know, Mm -hmm. well, we're just going to go back to the thing that we all have in common that's the bible but the great thing about the apostles creed especially is it is so basic the language is uh for the most part biblical language the the use of the term catholic in there is not in the bible but it is definitely expressing a a, a biblical concept that the church is, is jew and gentile and male and female and everybody every nation is invited in this universality of the church it's not just one little local chapter so uh you know, the language itself is, so for, I like to say that for a biblicist who's really valuing biblical language and concepts and sticking as close to the that biblical idea as possible, the Apostles' Creed is the creed for you. But I would <laughs> also say, look, um, the Bible itself contains what most 
New Testament scholars would call creeds, early mm-hmm. creeds or confessions of faith. So First Timothy uh, chapter 3, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians 1, the Christ hymn there, probably John 1, the Logos hymn, the Word became flesh, and that this stuff has elements of this, of kind of a, a hymn, hymnic or creedal kinds of language. And so it would be, you know, to say we're against creeds uh, is not just going against very early church history, but also scripture itself has these summaries, you know, this confessions, these early summaries of the faith embedded in the scriptures themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like for our Advent series coming up, we're going to be walking through Philippians 2, which I know many mm-hmm. uh, would consider to be like an early hymn or potentially a creed mm-hmm. of that sort. Um, yep. Well, we've talked a good deal about creeds just in general, which I wanted to do as we begin kind of the series for those who maybe aren't familiar with just even the nature of creeds. But let's maybe move to to the actual uh, creed itself in this case, the Apostles' Creed. And I want to begin by just having you having you maybe talk us um, through how the creed is even structured on like a macro level. How is the creed organized? What's the overall subject matter that it addresses through this organization? Yeah, so creeds, uh, pretty much all of the creeds that, that we'll be talking about um, are the, uh, are structured related to the Trinitarian creation redemption narrative. So it's it's theological. It's presenting the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then uh, some some material about each of those, the person, the work, uh, and it's also narratival. So it's telling the story of creation, redemption. The fall is is always implied that you know Christ died for our sins, um, and then uh, ultimate restoration eschatologically into looking into the future. Usually, something about the church uh, involved in that in every one of the creeds and confessions. So, yeah, it, that's the way they're structured. They're trinitarian in in structure, uh, which makes sense because if you're being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, that you kind of need to know what that means, right? I'm <laughs> yeah, in the name of, sure, yeah. Right? I'm pretty sure that the person who's being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's not the first time they heard, uh, you know, the, these terms. Uh, there's some instruction involved in that. And so some confession of, of faith in the triune God involves who they are and what they've done. And so that's what it is. They're, they're structured um, according to the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the first thing that's really obvious in the Apostles' Creed itself. Mm-hmm. And the other creeds, as we'll, as we'll see, they mm-hmm. get a lot more specific about certain Trinitarian convictions than probably the Apostles' Creed does, like the nature of Christ and his relationship to the Father and uh, statements about the Holy Spirit. Um, it's more implied here just by putting mm-hmm. all three in parallel to each other. Um, but it, it is interesting. You So you have, you have the creed um, sort of divided up by the persons of the Trinity. And it really, it kind of follows the plan of redemption, even still, like you mm-hmm. have the father who is the creator, you have the right. son who is the one who redeems that creation. So a new creation. So create, you move from creation to new creation, but he accomplishes it. And then the spirit finally is the one who then uh, sort of applies that salvation by sanctifying and setting apart the people of God. So that's where you can also exactly. kind of wonder, I think on the an initial reading of the Apostles' Creed, you get to the section on the Holy Spirit and it starts to mention the church and the communion of saints. And you're kind of like, what is that? Like that feels a little bit like a hodgepodge of random things in there. But if you understand the spiritual work of gathering then those that Christ exactly. has purchased, it really does fit well. Exactly. Um, and, and I like how you, you mentioned it's the, the Trinitarianism is implied. Some have said 
that, well, it's not Trinitarian, it's just talking about the economic Trinity, you know, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. These are three characters in the story of redemption. But but if you upon closer examination, if you even look at that very first line, I believe in God the Father, and if you understand that it's generally in chronological order, he's God the Father prior to to creating heaven and earth and everything, which implies he's got a fatherly relationship to some to someone, yeah, someone. something, yeah, and it's not creation because that hasn't happened yet, right? So he's the father of what? Well, next line in Jesus Christ is the only son, our Lord. So he's the son of the father who is eternally the father of the son. There's that implication. Mm-hmm. And then you realize he's the son of the father, but then he was born or conceived by the Holy spirit. But wait, I thought he was the son of the father. What's the Holy spirit have to do with the mm-hmm. conception, mm-hmm. right? So you're, so you can kind of read, read between the lines that you have some kind of relationship between father, son, and Holy spirit, even though it's not, clearly defined with refined language and you're absolutely right that that comes more um at nicaea constantinople and the and the technical language that used to answer that question but it's not non-existent in the apostles creed itself yeah and the later the later creeds and such it, it's it's clear that they're responding to certain controversies exactly. that start to arise um, I guess that's one of the, so that's where some of the technical language starts to come in. They start to employ certain technical languages that set them on a certain side in those controversies. Oftentimes, um, with the Apostles' Creed, do we know anything about the history? I know you mentioned kind of the baptismal formula. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, sense in which the creed is also responding to particular historical circumstances or occasions like false teaching or anything like that that helps us understand the creed? Yeah, probably not exactly. There are some some variations that talk about resurrection of the of the body or resurrection of the flesh, even using the term carnis rather than um, soma, which is body. Um, sarks or or carnis is, I mean, literally meat. You know, it's as physical and visceral as you can get. Um, and there were uh, early false teachings that hated the body, hated the physical universe called docetism and forms of Gnosticism that really emphasize the spiritual and the resur- resurrection is just dying and going to heaven and this denial of the physical physical world. So that underscoring of not only Christ's resurrection, he was raised the third day from the dead and then ascended to heaven in his bodily form, but also our own resurrection. It's funny, when I was a, a Lutheran kid growing up and I would you know recite, and I believe in communion of saints and forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting i i didn't put two and two together that that resurrection of the body confession was about my body that yeah that right. dying and going to heaven and escaping this body wasn't ultimate salvation that was i'm still waiting for body i thought it it was just talking about easter again you know jesus's oh, resurrection sure. is so important we need to mention it again you know nobody really talked to me the, the very biblical old and new testament teaching that that no redemption is physical as well as spiritual. So it is probably reinforcing this idea against um, early anti-materialist or, or docetic, uh, overly spiritual emphases on, on salvation. It may be one thing that's in the background here. Um, but otherwise, it's a pretty straightforward, as far as we can tell, when someone, you know, tugged the, the shirt of a, of a Christian and says, what is it that you wackos actually believe? They would respond with something similar to this, you know, as a positive presentation of what Christians believe. Mm -hmm. And speaking of belief, you said what we believe, um, each section of the creed begins with that, I believe. 
Um, maybe I can ask what is meant even by belief here? It's probably worth actually defining that rather than assuming what we mean by belief. And why is then belief so important in Christianity as it's encapsulated by the creed? So in other words, out of all the things, yeah. if you think about it, out of all the things that if you were to summarize Christianity, we kind of take it for granted that we would summarize it in terms of our beliefs but that's mm -hmm. a really interesting thing, actually. Out of all the things we could focus on, we give attention to belief. So what is belief and why is it why is it that that we give attention to yeah. here? Yeah. So I want to answer that part, define it. It is definitely we have a bunch of propositions here, right? Things that are um, they're not demonstrably true. You could have been an eyewitness of some of these things, but you can't demonstrate them. So. So therefore, they are things that we have received. We are receiving these from the preacher, the teacher, the scriptures, um, and and confessing them, our belief in them in baptism. Uh, they're they're basically things that are ontologically true or historically true. Events of of um, and ontologically meaning God exists. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. He is God and man. These kinds of uh, 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 truths of of the nature of something, and then things that happened that God did to accomplish our salvation. So we're confessing belief in those things. And obviously there we're associating ourselves with them. We're taking them on becoming as it were part of that story that we're telling in that, in that confession. But also it's, uh, I like the language of um, the, the apostles creed is like the pledge of, of allegiance of the Christian faith that we are going to in baptism, uh, which was the primary place where this was was used is we are pledging allegiance not just to facts but to the god who is accomplishing these things for our um for our salvation and i think it's really important as we who believe in salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone that every one of these lines the very first word of the creed is i believe the credo i it's faith is the is the foundation of all of this in response to what god has done on our behalf yeah. And so like you could, in other words, if we were to, you know, construct an alternative universe, like you could maybe think of, and there are religions that do this, like the five pillars of, I think it's five, the five mm -hmm. pillars of Islam are things they yeah. are called to do. Do. And so like, it, it, it's very interesting that here, Christianity is clearly setting itself in terms of believing things, not that we, not ultimately things that we do, of course, there are things that we are, we ought to do as Christians, but foundationally, it's a response to what God has done, to what the Father, Son, and Spirit have done and who they are and how they've acted in history for our redemption. And so the idea of faith, of trusting in what Christ has done is, is so important here. Um, exactly. Yep. Interestingly, the longest section, so even though it's broken up into Father, Son, and Spirit, the longest section is on Christ. Um, mm -hmm. Any thoughts on why that is, why so much attention on Christ in the creed? Yeah, uh, Christ is, so to speak, the crux of the Christian faith. I mean, if without Christ, there would be no Christian faith. Without the coming of Christ and the revelation of who he is as the uh, Son of God, eternal Son of God, a second member of the Trinity, we would have no Trinity, uh, re Trini Trinitarian reflection. In other words, it's the fact of the coming of the Son reveals something about uh, the nature of the Father and the fact that he has ascended on high and sent the Spirit who is God with us. Uh, mediating the presence of God, you know, that that brings about this Trinitarian reflection. So the fact of the revelation of Christ makes Christianity what it is. Um, 
But if you think about it, it is uh, he is the one who reveals the Father. The Spirit is the one who points to the Son. He's the one who has been revealed through the through the Old Testament prophets and in law and prophets and Psalms, etc. So he he is the the center of and always has been the center of the Christian proclamation. In fact, um, in some cases, to because uh, if you think about it, I do this little exercise in in uh, my ecclesiology class, one of my class at seminary, where I start at one end of the room. And work my way across to the other end, and I recite the Apostles' Creed, and I and I tell my students to pay attention to how much space I cover for each of the articles. And hmm. uh, by the time I get barely done with the, the sun, I'm almost hitting the the other wall. Uh, the the second article hogs a lot of the space because it's about Jesus. Uh, and I said, what else would you expect to be the center of the of the Christian faith in Christ Himself, His person, and His work? So that's the main reason it's um it's centered on that in baptism we are identifying with his death and resurrection and understanding that uh, he is a revelation uh, uh the means the 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 one through whom God has created uh redeemed and uh reveals himself. So that's why in fact in the early church sometimes they would just talk about being baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus even though it was trinitarian and you're responding to God the Father Almighty and his son and the spirit so much uh, of the space was spent on the person and work of Christ that they would just su- summarize it simply as baptism into the name of the Lord because he was so prominent in the creed. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a helpful point too, because oftentimes you'll hear people saying things like we don't give enough attention to, you know, the Holy spirit, or they feel like there's a disproportionate emphasis on Jesus. And they, sometimes I'll have people in the church present that to me. And I want to say like, they like almost like assuming it's a problem. And I want to say, well, actually that's just reflecting the proportionality that scripture itself gives us. Exactly. Um, the Holy Spirit's ministry is a spotlight ministry pointing us mm-hmm. to Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the one we, in, like Jesus says, when if whoever has seen me has seen the father. Um, and so there is yeah. actually an emphasis on Jesus in the scripture that then their creed here reflects. Exactly. One of the other emphasis then as the creed focuses on Jesus is both his uh, deity his, his godness, his divinity, as well as his humanity. And so, I mean, maybe a little bit of a preliminary to this question. It, it talks about Jesus here as the son, the only son, or it could be translated, I believe, only begotten son, um, which is putting him then in, in relationship to God the Father. Do you mind talking to us even though a little bit like about what that means for Jesus to be called the son? And of course, he's called the son ever uh, before he's conceived of the the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. so there's a a preexistent nature to this Son before he becomes human. But what does it mean to call this Jesus the Son? Yeah, right. So uh, what it doesn't mean, first of all, what the church, the early church, always insisted, it doesn't mean that he's his literal Son. This isn't like the Greek and Roman gods where they're you know engaging all kinds of shenanigans and everything and all of a sudden having this baby and here's this new new god or demigod and they very clearly distinguish themselves from that and what it means is it's it's emphasizing a relationship because uh um the father like we say like father like son that everything he's in the same uh genus or same category as the father just like i'm in the same category of humanity as my father i'm not less human because i'm the son of my father. Uh, humanity doesn't diminish with each generation. And the same idea. So it, it, by analogy, um, we're seeing this relationship, but we're also noticing that there's distinction. So there's unity of nature, 
the Father and the Son has they have to be of the same nature that is equally divine. But also because they're using relational terminology, there's distinction between the Father and the Son, and that's going to be much more developed than in mm-hmm. you know in, in your subsequent podcast when they talk about Nicene Creed and the, yep. and the issues related to that. But that's already being affirmed when the the Apostles' Creed is is kind of coming into use. They're talking about look, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father, but there's just one God, not three gods. All of these things are being said without some of that nice, convenient, yeah. efficient, tidy language um, that, yeah. that you find in the later creeds. Yeah, like the Chalcedonian definition will really specify yeah. the the understanding of the natures of Christ, and even the Nicene makes more explicit things like well, – we'll get into this if you're listening and you don't know what this means, but things like the eternal generation of the Son and yeah, yeah. those sort of doctrines. But already here you have sort of uh, packed in to even the language yeah. of calling Jesus the Son or the only begotten Son. Exactly. And Kirk, the also, also the thing is you asked a question earlier about what is the – you know, is there any false teaching that is prompting this form of the creed, the, the Apostles' Creed? And, you know, the earliest false teaching, it's probably shocking for people to realize, was was not really the, the heavenly or divine origin of the Son. It was his humanity. Yeah. It was, well, yeah, how could this divine being, this, this, this God being in the heavenly realm come in and actually take on real flesh and real humanity? And so... The, the need of the day in the second century anyway was reaffirming his true humanity and his, that he truly died and truly rose in the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not affirming his his deity per se. Yeah. So if modern liberalism, theological liberalism, that is, sometimes would, you know, deny Jesus's divinity or deity, say he's exactly. or, Yeah. So in the early church, like even in First John, you see a denial yeah. that he came in the flesh. So flesh. the creed is affirming both of these. Why is it so important mm-hmm. that the early church, like what did the early church see um, being at stake in needing to actually affirm that Jesus was both truly God and truly man? Yeah, just just our eternal salvation. So it was uh, just right, that, right you know? <laughs> yeah, just that, nothing else. No, seriously, it was like if um, you know, if he was just a divine being that kind of appeared, he was a phantom, and he went through, taught, and did some things, and all he would be is an example, right? He's just mm-hmm. an example for us to follow. He's a means to to bring us revelation. If he was just a man, just a man, uh, then then his death would have been at best a martyrdom. You know, he's dying mm-hmm. for a cause. Or if he was a perfect man, you know, one perfect man could die in place of one sinner, right? It's an equal exchange. But the fact that he's the God man, fully human, fully divine, means that his sacrifice for our sins, his atoning sacrifice is, is of infinite worth. And it had to be, you know, these these two natures in this one person for that that um for that benefit. So that it's often you see in some of the church fathers this statement that that which is not assumed is not saved. That is, if mm-hmm. the Son of God did not assume full humanity, take on full humanity, then then he can't save it because he's dying in our place. He's rising for us on our behalf for justification. Right. Yeah. So he, in order to actually um, 
embrace the predicament and rescue us exactly. from the human predicament. He actually had to be a human. And we'll see this too in the, in the subsequent creeds. Like they go out of their way to specify that he had a reasonable body and soul. Like everything that it means to be human, he had to take on. He wasn't just like the shell of a human or something because exactly. he was redeeming every quality of what it means to be human. And that's what the, resur the, the death is to die to that predicament. And the resurrection is to actually raise humanity up into, into a new restored. creation. Yeah. 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 And that's oftentimes missed in our evangelical theology. We sometimes mm -hmm. think of the body as just like a mere vehicle Jesus took on to pay for sin. And we sort of miss the, that's, it's true that Jesus did take on a body to pay for sin, but we miss some of the elements of the incarnation as actually part of Jesus restoring humanity, becoming the exactly. very renewed image of God in his resurrection, a new creation, as Paul says, and for well then everyone who's in Christ. Um, yep. yeah. So maybe a couple things that sometimes trip people up, like we'd be, uh, some people would probably be disappointed if we didn't ask these next two questions. Mm -hmm. Um, and even in our rendition of the statement of faith, we talk about how Jesus descended to the dead. Some people are used to the translation that he descended into hell. Um, and they find that really confusing. This idea of the descent of Christ oftentimes celebrated on what's called Holy Saturday, the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. Do you mind talking us talking to us a bit about mm -hmm. what we are supposed to understand about this whole descent into hell thing? Yeah, I know some scholars have gone uh, you know out of their way trying to show that this line he descended into hell or descended to the dead or to the place of the dead is not in some forms of these some of these early confessions that I mentioned that that this kind of pulls together. Um, and and it's true that probably the earliest Roman baptismal confession did not include this line. The fact though is it's all over the earliest church fathers talking about this descent into the place of the dead uh, on, like you said, Holy Saturday. It it does have biblical warrant. There is you, we have to admit there's some debate about what these passages mean. But mm -hmm. uh, you know Ephesians chapter four, he he who ascended, you know, on high, is he who descended to the lowest parts of the earth. Um, and First uh, Peter chapter three, you know, he pro proclaimed to the spirits now in prison or uh, who are in prison. Uh, and and so there's some that's always been read as Jesus did something when he died yeah. and his, you know, the divine, the divine person who has taken on full humanity and therefore a the immaterial part of the person. He continues on and does something between Friday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. And that's the question. That's so at, at bottom, it's, it's it's acknowledging that he went to the place of the dead. Now, where he went, what he did, what what nobody says is he went to hell to the fires of hell and suffered. So th that's yeah. sometimes where people balk, you know, yeah. oh, he went to hell and suffered in hell. Well, that's not there aren't any church fathers who say that some say he went and proclaimed um, victory over the over the wicked. Some say he he moved, kind of took the the, the saints of the Old Testament who were in a particular chamber of the afterlife and moved them to paradise or or something like that the details are pretty fuzzy in the early church but that he actually went to the place of the dead the realm of the of the spirits um between his death and resurrection is universally held and uh, it's about all I'll, I'll say because there is a dispute there, there are diversity of opinions about right, it even in yeah. the early church i would direct people if they're really interested in this topic um to a book by justin bass 
uh, who did a, his dissertation on this and published it since, and it's called Battle for the Keys. And so you can just Google that, find it on Amazon, and he does a deep dive into the biblical and New Testament um, discussion of the the descensus ad infernos, the descent to the dead. Uh, so yeah, we can we can confess it. We must confess that something happened between Friday and Sunday. But the details of that, that we have a little bit of freedom there to kind of figure out what it is that he did and why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at the very least, like you said, it's confessing that Jesus died. And as humans die, we don't believe mm-hmm. that uh, like we just stop existing when we die. Exactly. And so whatever it is for a human to die and to be in the place where dead people go. What, and, and again, there's a lot of dispute about like even some of the passages, passages you mentioned, like first Peter three and Ephesians mm-hmm. uh, four, not everyone even thinks that those passages exactly. refer to something that happened. Like some people think the Ephesians four is just referring to him coming to earth in his incarnation sure. or first Peter three is actually just describing his victory, his proclaiming victory in his ascension. Um, exactly. And so there's a lot of dispute over the particular phrases, but at the very least, we don't believe Jesus stopped existing between his death and resurrection. And we're affirming that as the one who died for us, he fully absorbed and tasted death, which means that we can affirm he goes to the place of the dead in the very least. Uh, That's what we can affirm. Um, Even if there are some theologians who who dispute and maybe hold to more specific um, ideas involved in that. Exactly. Um, what about this line that sometimes trips people up? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I know um, I was talking to someone once and I mentioned that our church, which is not Roman Catholic, um, recites the Apostles' Creed. And they found that really confusing that we would affirm belief in the Roman Catholic Church when we are not Roman Catholic. Um, what is, what's right. going on with that? Yeah, you have to understand when this was written, uh, especially that line of the creed, uh, the holiness of the church, that we are set apart and called to holy lives. And, and right, that's that's not controversial. Um, be holy as I am holy and to be sanctified and consecrated. That's clear. Um, the unity of the church. These are some of the things that we all affirm. But the Catholicity of the church, uh, when people hear the word Catholic, what happens is this this. Uh, cardinal sin of historians is anachronism so if you uh you you know taking the way a term is later defined or later understood and then reading it back into earlier uses of that term Mm -hmm. so this is what happens oftentimes and i i know you you read early on the, uh, the the version that uses the term universal church well that's a good translation of catholic catholic is a greek term that means uh literally according to the whole according to the whole and that is that the church our little local church is part of something bigger than itself we're not the only you know mom and pop shop in town this is a a network global network that that embraces every language and every people and every tongue and tribe going all the way back to the first century and there's there's unity and continuity with that that's what we mean by catholic uh later on eventually became used for the roman catholic church but which um, you know, we sometimes say large C Catholic versus small C Catholic. I love mm-hmm. the term Catholic because it is used very positively in the early church mm-hmm. um, for describing that, that Christ is the head of the church Catholic, just as, you know, the, the pastor of your elders are, are the visible heads of the church local and, and understanding it. So that's what it means by that. We're confessing that we're not in this alone. We're not the only ones. We're part of a, a brotherhood or sisterhood of churches spread throughout the world 
for whom we should be praying, uh, to whom we have a responsibility. We're not, the, they're not the competition. <laughs> you know, we're mm-hmm. all in this together. That, that church down the street that may have a different name than yours, but holds to the same basic faith. Yeah, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not competitors. Yeah, you might you might think of it like Catholic Roman Catholic. It's capitalized because it's a proper yeah. noun. Um, yeah, and Catholic the word Catholic not the in gift. yeah not in the sense of Roman Catholic like a proper noun. It's it just means universal. And so we're not trying to what. So hopefully, if you're listening to this and you're part of my church and you're wondering, you know, why do we say universal? We're not trying to just change the creed here and make it say what we want, like take out the Roman Catholic and just substitute a word that we feel fits. No, we're actually trying to translate the idea and being in a heavily Roman Catholic area like Milwaukee, um, it's probably going to be a little bit unnecessarily confusing for people if they see that. Um, but other times you'll see, if you go to other Protestant churches that re- confess the Apostles' Creed, they'll say Catholic, lowercase c, and normally there's like an asterisk in there that explains the universal church. Um, so this isn't yeah. an uncommon sort of thing. No, and your, and your solution to that problem is a good solution because ca- the word Catholic itself is not even a translation. It's just a uh, what's called a transliteration of a oh, Greek sure. word. Catholicos, you know, so all they've done is just turn the Greek letters into English letters. So you haven't even translated it by saying Catholic. So translating it, you know, I've always toyed with the idea of suggesting, you know, confession, the holy and whole church. Mm. But uh, people think you're stuttering then. But you're basically, that's what you're confessing, right? So your universal is, uh, uh, it's a good actual real translation of the word Catholic. Are there any other doctrines uh, that you think this creed highlights that we today in modern contemporary evangelicalism are prone to neglect? Um, and maybe, yeah, just kind of take your pick if you think there's ones that are, are yeah. especially worth mentioning that we're kind of prone to maybe not think through all the time. Yeah, I think, um, let me just say four things very briefly, but the bullet point, the virgin bur- born of the Virgin Mary. Um, that is important. It's not saying something about Mary per se, but it's saying something that he had a real birth, just like, just like all of us, uh, and was truly human. It's not, he just didn't enter into the world, you know, Mm. at the age of 30 or whatever. Um, the idea that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, people are like, why in the world? You got the father, you got the son, you got Mary, you've got the spirit. And then they happen to mention this Roman procurator, this governor who, you know, is kind of a, weaselly squirrely villain in the mm-hmm. in the narrative why is he mentioned in the creed of the church well what it does is it it drives the events of salvation history into the real soils of of real this world history yeah i mean that's that's audacious to say no no, no these things these are not uh um myths that happen in some fantasy land these happen in a place mm-hmm. where you can find archaeological evidence for these things i think that that's really important we have a of a real faith that happened in this real world. Um, that the fact that he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead, uh, it's a it's a real reckoning, and um, there's going to be a real resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. The Old and New Testament both declare this, and that uh, we sometimes shy away from the fact of the the reality of judgment that is going to come. Nobody's going to escape. It's not like the person who dies before Christ comes back have somehow escaped judgment. Yeah. All of us. There's going to be a reckoning. And then the last point I like to point out is this idea of the communion of saints. Uh, back in my Lutheran days as a kid, I thought that was talking about the Lord's Supper. It's not. It's talking <laughs> about the fellowship 
that what we have in common of the believers because of our unity of the spirit. That's why it's under the article of the Holy Spirit. Not only has the spirit united us to Christ by the baptism of the spirit, but he's also united us to one another. And this corporate idea of we're in this together, that is the church, the body of Christ. Um, and we're united to each other, both those who are alive as well as the body of Christ who has departed awaiting resurrection. We're, we're all in this uh, one body united by the one spirit. And that, that implies an obligation that we have for one another and, and looking out for our, each other's spiritual growth, which is what the priesthood of all believers is really about. Yeah. And in you're showing like even in the creed, it shows that there isn't this idea of a solo Christianity that Christianity exactly. is like just lived on our own. It it implies like this story of redemption implies being sanctified by the spirit set apart into a communion of saints. And it's really interesting to hear you talk like you said you grew up reciting the creed. I did not. Um, I grew up in kind of a diversity of Protestant churches and mm -hmm. I went to my dad was Catholic for a bit when I was younger and um, went to like a Lutheran school and a Catholic school. And so I probably encountered the creed, but I don't, it doesn't feature prominently in my upbringing. And so in some ways coming to the creed more as an adult, I, I'm less and of more like having been theologically educated, I'm less um, apt to fall into those misconceptions yeah. that you kind of grew up having, which is really interesting to hear because like, it didn't occur to me that someone would take resurrection of the dead, for instance, at the end as referring to Jesus's resurrection um, or communion as referring to the Lord's supper, which of course, sometimes we call the Lord's supper communion because we mm -hmm. are communing with Christ and his people, but it's not, but in some ways the term communion is deriving from that broader reality. It's not coming from the Lord's supper itself. Um, so it's really interesting to right. hear you kind of identify uh, potential misunderstandings that maybe weren't even on my radar. Um, sure. I think it's also worth noting, even as we already said, a, a, a doctrine that we can neglect being the resurrection of our bodies. I think sometimes it's really easy for us to think that our final salvation is to sort of die and leave this world and go live in heaven forever. And of course, we know from scripture that apart prior to Christ's coming, that those who die are with Christ. And so there, mm -hmm. there is a sense of like being in heaven with Christ when we die, if that happens before he returns. But theologians mm -hmm. call this the intermediate state. In other words, it's a time between um, leading up to Christ's coming, the ultimate hope when, the, when scripture talks about our hope, like when First uh, Thessalonians talking about believers dying and we don't grieve as the world does without hope. The hope isn't heaven mm -hmm. in that passage. It's not like we we have we have hope when our friends and our family members die because our Christian family members, that is, because they will be in heaven, although that's true. But the hope in that passage is actually uh being changed and transformed in the resurrection mm -hmm. to live on a new creation. I think that is often missed, um, even as we say the confession, you know, regularly. Yeah, yeah. So it's I like to say that look the um we definitely affirm that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yep. But uh, too many Christians end that statement with an exclamation point instead of what scripture does. And it's an ellipsis. You know, there's three yep. dots because there's more to come. And then that's what the creed reminds us of, that we could sometimes forget um, that the resurrection of the flesh, the resurrection of the body is something that we're still anticipating. And uh, it, that, that's if you take a look at unbiased, take a take a yellow pad and go through the new testament and look at where it emphasizes our resurrection as our hope and versus simply dying and going to heaven for that intermediate hope 
um, the emphasis is overwhelmingly on on resurrection. So the, yeah. the creed is absolutely right in, in underscoring that for us. Yeah. In some ways, the the intermediate, the going to heaven is sort of meant, it's brought up sort of maybe um, as, a, as, a, as a comment, as an aside, so to say, in certain passages, whereas the resurrection yeah. actually is the focal point Prominent. of hope. Yep. Um, it's, yeah, it's very much the focus of, of when, mm-hmm. when Christ returns and death will be defeated and the ultimate victory. Um, yep. Maybe we can close with this final question then. Um, th- this podcast is called Church Theology, um, the, the theology that the church holds to and theology that is in service to the church. The, tag, the tagline is on the church and for the church. Um, and so I think it's worth considering how topics we address here ultimately are serving the health of the church and and aid the church in its mission. So how would you answer that question of why the Apostles' Creed specifically is important for the church's health and her ability to pursue her mission today? Yeah, it's important to understand how the Apostles' Creed functioned. The, the Apostles' Creed functioned as a churchly statement. It functioned in association with baptism, uh, that's the initiation into this church community uh, early on. That's how it was understood. Uh, it was the, the the embracing this faith once for all delivered to the saints. And by us today in the 21st century, at the especially I love that your church confesses the, the Apostles' Creed and rehearses that. Uh, we are connecting ourselves not just to all other churches that are confessing that same basic faith. We're also connecting ourselves to the earliest church and throughout the church throughout history so it has it's all about the church in that sense it's a churchly document it's not a uh you know the opening page of a systematic theology or speculative philosophy um there there's enough of that in church history this is a uh as earthy and on the ground rubber meets the road kind of uh document and confession that you can get uh and it reminds us of um those uh those very fundamental essential truths that churches Look, at we have so many different denominations and churches sometimes named after the things that distinguish them from all the others. And this is one of those things that we can say, look, the weighty, uh, immensely weighty elements of this Apostles' Creed is something that holds all of us together despite our differences. And I think that has very practical implications. It is what I mentioned before. It's the thing that prevents us from pointing to that that like-minded church down the street and calling them, you know, the competition. Mm -hmm. And it helps us also understand that every time we confess this as a church, um, we are not alone, not just contemporary Mm -hmm. with the church down the street, but the church across the ages, that this is a faith that is rooted in history and has an entire community, the, the, the cloud of witnesses we can we can think of, of, of those who confess this along with us, as well as our believer who's standing right next to us in this very moment saying this along exactly. with us. Exactly. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and joining us and be willing to uh, teach us more about the creed. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.